Welcome to Yoga for First Responders On Air, where we break down yoga, neuroscience, resilience, and public safety in a manner that's authentic, educational, and most importantly, entertaining and lighthearted. I'm YFFR's founder, Olivia Mead. As a yoga instructor and neuroscience enthusiast, I'm passionate about supporting first responders and anyone looking to improve their overall human performance. Each week, we'll dive into a new topic and often bring on expert guests to share their insights and experiences, but we'll also keep it real and share our own stories and struggles along the way. So whether you're a first responder or seeking to master the science of mental and physical resilience, this podcast is your ultimate guide to triumph over life's challenges with unbreakable strength and unwavering fortitude. By pressing play, your training has begun. All right. Well, welcome to On Air and welcome to The Boob Show. It is the boob month, and so we have decided to make it a boob show. And actually, so we have two guests, and what's really cool about our guests today is that they have a lot in common. Um, they're uh, both in the public safety world, they're wife of our instructors, and they're cancer survivors. And it's October, so what a perfect month to bring them on. It's also um, 8 a.m. for me. 7 a.m. for Maggie. Um, and we <laughs> we normally do our podcast in like the evening with like a whiskey and like just like loosen up. This is our first like early morning coffee podcast. So coffee podcast. It's gonna... We had a show once upon a time like called like coffee conversations or something. What did that was like a private podcast with just the instructors? Yeah. Yeah. We, made so we, it, tried... we made it public. Yeah. We try so you know how well the coffee conversations went if we kept it private. So bear yeah. with us. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so let's get right to it. So we have Maggie Eastman and Sarah Hall. Maggie's in Seattle. Sarah is in the St. Louis area. What's your specific town, Sarah? Oh, now we can't hear you. Shoot. We'll put it this way, like coffee conversation morning is rough like sarah logged in and it literally said network is struggling and we're like yeah oh, man is that not the truth or what like it i was feel like, like the platform, platform is not awake making yet it real. <laughs> we're making it real maggie are you are you in the official seattle area I'm just outside of Seattle, south of Seattle, in an area called Kent, which I always feel like I have to clarify. I am in the nice side of Kent. It's pretty split down the middle, but oh, they're okay. the not great side. But I'm I'm in you're the from side. the right side of the tracks. Correct. Yeah. Are there literal tracks these days, or is it more like there a, are a lot in our area? Yeah. A literal tracks. Yeah. We have tracks on in our town, and I do, but believe it does divide mm -hmm. you know like yeah. so are we on the right side or the wrong side we are on the wrong side <laughs> <laughs> but then i think it goes back and then it like kind of <clears throat> corrects itself all right so we were saying that um maggie is from the right side of the tracks in kent which is outside of seattle just to be clear and Sarah is just outside of St. Louis. What's your particular town? So I live in O'Fallon, which is um, the west of St. Louis. 
I want to jump right into it so we keep this nice and concise as we like to do. Um, I want to start backwards and or and move, you know, kind of, I want to go back to the future. So tell me about the moment because Maggie, you were a trainee in class 022 in Castle Rock. Sarah, you were a squad leader at class 022 Castle Rock. So tell me about the moment you guys had that first conversation of like, oh, wow, like that, that must be really interesting because to when you catch someone's eyes and you know, wow, all of a sudden we know so much about each other's lives just by knowing we have this in common. So tell me a little bit about what that conversation was like. Do you want to go or you want me to? <laughs> I know. I was like, oh, who's going to speak first? Um, okay. Well, I, I mean, I can speak, I guess, first. Okay. And then I would love for you to tell your perspective because you didn't actually even tell me that we had this in common, Maggie, until it was like the last day or like the day before the last day. And um, I think it's kind of like one of the first times because I, I literally can't wait to tell people sometimes like I'm jumping out of my skin, like, oh, we have this in common. Like we can, you know commiserate on this or, you know, we, whatever. Um, but, uh, I found it really interesting in the way that you told me. And as soon as we did, it's like my mind opened up to like all the ways that I could connect with you. And it just made me love you even more. But I think it's also because it was after a full, like five days of just, you know, working with you and being around you. So, um, so yeah, I, I am curious and love, would love to hear why because you told me in that moment why you wait to tell people but um share with everybody because i think it's really interesting so uh you mentioned something um about being a survivor when i was getting ready to do um the part of instructor school where i was about to go through like the dark building in my fire gear and it was um, the end of June in Castle Rock. And it, I mean, I was profusely sweating from the moment I stepped outside and, you know, we had like a group of people that were getting ready to go, um, and do this exercise. And I knew it was going to be intense. And I can't remember exactly what you said, but you made some comment about being a survivor. And, and then you sort of just said, um, and you know, I, I have a gratefulness for it that I wouldn't expect other people to understand. And it literally made me want to cry because I was like, God, I, that is exactly how I feel. It's so confusing to try to explain to someone how you have gratitude for one of the most traumatic things you could have possibly gone through. Um, and it just doesn't make sense when you try to tell people, no, I'm, I'm better for having this experience. And for me, it's just, it's tough. I still feel that just like, ooh, do I want to share this right away? Because I don't want it to be the only part of my identity. I can't have it be this thing that that's all I am. So I want to share it. I want to connect with people on it. But I also have fought so hard to just be so many other things that it makes me nervous to bring it up and feel like I'm only going to be seen as this. Yeah. I think those are both really powerful statements from both of you as to how you can have two lenses on the same situation. And that talks, I mean, coming from the first responder uh, lens, um, amazing stories. I'm so excited about this podcast because this is a world that is so foreign to me. And so, 
I'm going to be quiet for most of the podcast and just listen, but to hear how that same situation in life for two different people can be approached from two almost diametrically opposed viewpoints is fascinating and should allow others who are listening to, no matter how you feel about a situation that you have gone through or something that you feel is defining your life, to know that however you're coming to it and approaching it is okay. And to be able to connect with others about it. Like if you feel like you're suffering in silence, you're not, you're not alone. Like just try to make those connections. Um, Olivia and I have our fertility journey where we felt like we were struggling in silence because we didn't ever share that story. Turns out the community is much broader when you start opening up and sharing it. But to be able to, for both of you to share from that lens, that's, that's super cool. And to instructor school, how cool of a bond is it that you have that as well from that overcoming standpoint? Because Maggie, I was uh, part of that, you're helping you go through that dark burning building. And I remember we had to overcome from a mental challenge. It's like, man, you've overcome so much. Like this is so easy. So, well, there are two things I want to note about what you said. First of all, this is the first time I'm hearing the story, which is really cool. And, and I, I like that I'm hearing it right now for the first time. So two things I've no just noted was we always talk about at instructor school, how the yoga and even that tax skills day that you're referring to where we put everyone through law enforcement and fire skills, you know, to get a taste of it, that it's only a metaphor and representing other things in life, right? Yoga is life training. The warrior two is a metaphor for this. You're struggling in low plank is a metaphor for this. We really try to, to get that through to people. Right. And I love how I just got chills hearing that. Oh my gosh. I'm about to go into this building and it's bringing up things. It's not about fire service. It's what it's bringing up in you. And then Sarah, you're relating it to this. And that, and so that is a perfect example of how what we do is life training, regardless if you're teaching first responders or not, you know? Um, and the other thing I want to note is one thing I struggle with sometimes with people <laughs> in general is those who are trauma performative meaning they and it's not about willingness to share their story because I'm on the side of I'm willing to share my IVF story a lot it's I'm not talking about that it's where you know Maggie you were saying I I really want to make sure I'm all these other things you know besides a cancer survivor and Sometimes I note there are folks that want to only be their trauma because that's their identity. And the reason I struggle with that is when I bring them solutions for or for processing stress and resilience, they don't even want them. They don't even want them. And so that I struggle, you know, so I just saw the other side of it. Uh, with what you said, which I thought was really interesting. So then Maggie, tell us the moment that you were like, you know what, I'm going to go up to Sarah and I'm going to tell her we have this in common. Um, I might cry. So I, <clears throat> not too long before instructor school. So I, my original diagnosis came in 2014 and it was bad. It was stage four metastatic invasive ductal carcinoma, breast, bones, liver, um, which is the prognosis for that is terrible. It's so terrible um, that my family actually told my oncologist that we don't actually want to know what the percentage is because we thought that that would, would not be helpful in my treatment. 
And so I was 32 years old, went through tons of chemo, multiple surgeries, complete hysterectomy at 32. And um, it was a lot. And then they said, you have to have a double mastectomy. And I just said, no, I'm done. I can't, I don't want to do any more of this. I feel like a science experiment. I've lost connection to my body. I am just so deeply wounded. I cannot do anymore. And so this was 2014. Uh, they said, you can have a year. I put it off for a year. Uh, a year went by. I was pretty healthy. I was doing well. My scans were clean. I said, I'm not doing the double mastectomy. Not, it's not for me. I don't want to do it. And then 2019, October of 2019, my mom got diagnosed. And I watched her go through a double mastectomy at 68 years old. And I just thought, what the hell am I doing? Why am I putting this off? I know I need to do it. I'm just going to do it. And I did it about uh, just shy of a year before instructor school. And uh, during surgery, they found another tumor for a different type of breast cancer that wouldn't have been found had I not voluntarily at that point gone in for surgery. So for me, it was towards the end of instructor school as I'm still trying to figure out my new body and I'm uncomfortable with it and it's not something that I've talked to people about. And now we're doing these poses that are opening the chest and we're laying on the mat. And I just, it for me, it was just that culmination of a really tough week, learning a lot about myself and finally feeling like in that moment on this mat in another state around people I don't know, I understood the connection between mind and body and that everything that I'd been fighting was just, I just hadn't connected the two yet. And my mind and my body are actually fighting a disease together. I'm not in my mind at war with my body. And then I was able to share with Sarah. Wow. I mean, and that's it. We don't need to have any more podcasts. Like that was. Yeah. I am feeling like, that viscerally in my entire body. Yeah. Like un unbelievable. And we always say, and this is the, that is the pinnacle. Like, I mean, there's no other, there's no better example that what we do at instructor school is for the students first. It's for the students first. You have to go on this journey for you first before we go out and teach it to the world and teach it to other people. I know that some people are brought into instructor schools from their agencies to teach it to their departments, but we hear this story over and over and over again, the profound impact that instructor school has that five, six day intensive, it's self healing, it's self finding, it's self grounding. I mean, it, it really, really is for you. And like, wow. I mean, I, I remember that moment for you on the mat. I mean, mm -hmm. I really, really do. Like it was such a powerful moment for you and it was a powerful moment for everybody in the room. And uh, thank you for sharing. Cause honestly, like felt that too to the core. And that's, uh, yeah, that's exactly like Eric said, why this work exists and which is why I have such a pet peeve when pe when I introduce it to people and they're like, oh yeah, we could use some more flexibility or this is, you know, I'm not a yoga body. It, you get frustrated because you're like, it almost feels insulting to the depth of the experience, you know, that they could have. Um, so I actually want to ask you guys this, um, both having double mastectomies and, and Sarah, I do want to address too, when you were first diagnosed, 
but um, you both had double mastectomies. I also, Maggie, I told you this, I got my first mammogram a couple weeks ago and I had it, well, a couple, well, I'm over 40, so that's why, but also um, when you're over 40 and you're going through IVF, cause I'm going to do another round of IVF, um, they won't let you do it unless you get a mammogram, um, you know, so I had that experience. Um, and also I breastfed my baby and, um, you know, so my question is the, your boobs leaving you, that identity and even a hysterectomy, right? I've had two close friends have hysterectomies and it was so tough for them. What was that like saying like, oh my God, saying goodbye to your breasts and like what, and now after the fact, how, how is your identity feeling? Either one of you can, can start. I can speak to this. Um, I actually think that everybody struggles differently. Um, it can be physical. Mine, I struggled actually more. I was, I had bright red hair before. And when I lost my hair from chemo, um, I struggled most with my identity because I was the redhead. When you walk into the room, people describe you as that. People don't typically describe you as the one with the big boobs. So I didn't like connect with, you know, that as my identity. And I also don't really feel like I ever had like a strong connection with my breasts. So, um, but I have also mentored people who losing their breast was a big part of them having to find themselves sexually after and like connecting with their partner different. Like it's, you know, it can be very different for everybody. For me, honestly, like I actually feel more confident now because of the story that my chest tells me. And, and I have since gone on, I've actually come to Colorado yearly and do tattoos and get all kinds of stuff done. Um, that makes me feel even more confident. So I think that maybe this speaks to the resiliency of the situation, but I actually looked forward to, I was pinning on Pinterest, like tattoos, mastectomy tattoos, like literally even before I started chemo, I knew I was going to have get them. And so I was looking forward to them the whole time. So losing my breast was not a big thing, but losing my hair, um, that was, that was a big thing for me. So yeah. What about you, Maggie? Um, yeah, I was one of the youngest patients my oncologist was treating at the time. So we had this great conversation about, um, you know, they sent me to somebody to talk about getting a wig. And I was like, yeah, I'm fairly lazy um, when it comes to any type of like hair makeup. Like I'm not, I don't Same. style my own hair. There's <laughs> no way I'm putting a wig on. And yeah, who? it, it wasn't for me. I would rather be bald. Um, and so we kind of laughed about it and she said, oh, wow, you know, a lot of my older patients, they losing their hair is the really difficult thing. But for me, it was just, I mean, I just didn't care. My family, everybody knew what was happening. Losing my hair was not a big deal. Um, and for the double mastectomy piece of it for me was, um, I was single at the time and I went through this period of treatment where I just desperately wanted to have control, which is laughable. Like it's so laughable. You don't have, I mean, there's no part of it that is within your control other than your mindset. Um, but I just thought if I end up with more scars, I'm going to have to explain that. Like 
now this isn't something that I can hide in the future. It like I'm I'm marked, I'm scarred in some way. It's going to be noticeable. Um, I'm going to have to have an explanation for why that is. So I also now have tattoos, Sarah, and I. Oh, I love it. Yeah, it's it's a total non-issue now. I I think the universe worked out the way it should, and there was a reason I I waited. But um, that's yeah. so that I mean, I want to like we need to shout out to or put in show notes your tattoo artists, you know, because that's just such a healing. Mm-hmm. I mean that that god that's the healing right i can imagine and um sarah i know you have reconstruction right but maggie do you did you miss out on the yffr bridge course there's still a chance to join the front line of wellness dive into yoga for first responders instructor school april 8th to 12th in washington dc this isn't just training it's a transformation Equip yourself to empower our first responders with resilience and strength. Why is this for you? You'll learn job-specific and culturally informed yoga from the best. Connect with a community dedicated to making a difference and master a program that blends physical readiness with mental resilience. Act fast. Seats are limited and they're going quick. Be the change. Embrace this life-changing journey and help bring wellness to our first responders. Your time is now. Visit yogaforfirstresponders.org to secure your spot. Let's make a difference together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, I, there's someone I know, another friend, she actually used to work for us. And again, in her 20s, uh, double mastectomy, breast cancer. You know her, right, Sarah? Um, and uh, she decided to be flat at first. And then uh, later changed her mind that she, you know, so, yeah, it's so interesting to me how I guess just depending on your life. Well, this is what we talk about in instructor school, right? The conditioning factors. All of us. Sorry if you can hear my baby. She's right outside the door yelling. And I don't know why her grandparents won't move her away. Um <laughs> the conditioning factors right like what brings you to so depending on your life beforehand coming to this exact same or similar situation everyone's going to have a different um response to it oh i'm more attached to my hair i'm more attached to this or i'm this or i'm single or i'm not single or you know whatever and we have to you know if someone is listening to this and has no connection to breast cancer whatsoever what can you take from this conversation that you could apply everywhere else? Like think about two people approaching anything, you know, and this is why there's conflict in, in relationships and communication because we're all looking at it from a different space. So um, super interesting. I think and you're, yeah, you're totally ahead. right. I think it does um, it going through cancer and just also even mentoring other people um what I have learned is like, at first, somebody would say something to me like, you know, this is how it's going to impact this. And in my, uh, you know, maybe it's my like old school brain would be like, I mean, that's not a big deal. But in reality, it's like every, everything is a different or big deal to somebody else, because it's a completely different perspective. And it was how their life but I think in general, I don't know if it's like, humility for someone else's perspective, or just being able to be understanding of someone else's perspective 
is a, is a little bit lost in society. And um, I don't know, maybe it was one of the biggest lessons that I've learned since going through treatment. I think you're absolutely right. I think this, uh, any sort of mindset of this is the way, period, you know, is a dangerous, you know, a dangerous mindset. Of course, I'm not talking about human rights or anything like that, but just the nuances of life. And again, this is not to compare, but I'm trying to take what you're saying and apply it to my own life is with um, IVF or even my C-section, right? I had the, I have the scar down here, which is a lot of people were telling me, here are creams, here are things that you can massage the scar and get it away. And here's what you can do. And I started doing it. And at one point I stopped and I was like, I love it. This is, this is the story of how my baby came out, you know? So, um, yeah. And then there are other people that don't feel that way about their C-section scar. And that's cool too. That is, that's totally, you know, totally fine. So definitely these are resilience stories that everyone listening can apply to their own struggle. So again, what I'm uh, noting is how young you both were and are now, but when diagnosed. So Sarah, how did it come about for you? Uh, my story is a, a little unique. So I um, was in the shower in the beginning of February on 2018. But I think the biggest thing to note was that I was 32, 31 weeks pregnant at the time when I found my lump. And I thought I was, it was my second baby. And I thought I was just getting ready to breastfeed again. And maybe there was a clogged, early clogged milk duct over there. And um, yeah, so my alarm bells really didn't even go off, even though they described it as the size of my tumor from the outside felt like the size of a golf ball um, because I, it was multifocal. I had five different um, tumors basically. And so it was huge um, to the touch, but it, I really alarm bells didn't go off until I got out of the shower and um, I had some blood coming out of my nipple. And I was like, this is really, <laughs> I don't know if I can say nipple on your podcast, but I just said it. Yeah. Um, you can say everything on this podcast. Okay, we have great. the little E. um yeah and so you know that started to be like this is unusual and so I brought it up to a couple of um friends I at the time was working with some midwives and literally half a week later it was on Valentine's Day I was getting my very first mammogram pregnant so I was like covered in this gigantic metal blanket around my belly Mm -hmm. and had my first ultrasound on my breast and then it was biopsied. And then a day later I found, I mean, when I left the office, she's like, I'm 99% sure this is cancer. And so I say Valentine's day is my cancerversary day. It was the day I was diagnosed, but now it has a whole new meaning. We never celebrated Valentine's day. Now we do every year. (laughs) So that moment, like, I mean, I just, just for both of you, that moment, obviously, you're in a completely different place, having gone through it, you both show so much gratitude and resilience through it. But what was your first, I mean, those thoughts in the moment, you're about to give birth, you're probably worried about your own mortality, like what's, what's going through your head? And what was the what was the next thing you did? Like after you left the office? What did, what did you do? Um, well, I personally cried, obviously, um, I cried 
for some of the strangest reasons, I think I, I latched on to the fact that um, I was possibly going to not be able to breastfeed. And I cried about that because I knew what a connection I felt with my first daughter um, just going through that. And gre- like I grieved that. Um, and then I was pretty much in shock about the rest of it. Like I didn't, you know, we talk about fight, flight or freeze all the time um, in that like nervous system response. And I think a little, a part of my brain just kind of numbed out to the rest of what the impact of what I was going to go through. And I'm naturally kind of one of those people where um, it's not that big a deal. And I try to keep my own, you know, stuff together for everyone else. And Mm -hmm. that was a hard lesson to learn when, you know, when everything started to wrap up, you know, the whole other side of treatment was probably the hardest side of treatment when I stopped having doctor's appointments so frequently and I was left alone with my thoughts and like, um, when I had to put my relationship back together after, you know, basically a year of, you know, us trying to figure things out and us having a newborn at home and, um, me trying to figure out who I was without my hair and, you know, just, there were so many changes. So, you know, you, you asked what happened that day. I think I didn't even think about anything else. Like I, mm-hmm. I grieved one thing at a time. Um, mm-hmm. and then when it was all over, that's when I really processed a lot of it. It would have been helpful for had someone said, you need to process everything in the moment as it comes at you. And I don't think it would have been such a crazy mess when it was all over. I've heard that before <clears throat> from, uh, you know, the gal that I mentioned earlier too, is that once she was got clean scans and everything and her hair was growing back, that's when it kind of all came down, you know? So I think again, since I always say we're never taught how to have resilience or process stress, then you go into survival, but, and then, you know, it's, it doesn't go away though. It piles up on you. So you know, what if we're taught how to process, you know, um, in the moment so that you're present for each step of the way. And Eric, we can hear you again if you wanted to add something. Yeah, I do. Because um, I'm just going to come in back in from, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to never preface this again. I'm only coming in from the first responder lens on this episode because I can't, uh, but, but it's so true. Like, that's why we see our public safety folks stay so damn busy. Like right. they will literally work themselves. They'll work the second job. They'll work the four overtime shifts. They'll work another fire department or police department job or security in their off days. They'll work a part-time job. Then they'll never be at home. They'll, if they're at home, they've got 85 house projects to get done. Like that is exactly why public safety personnel just never sit still. To be with because, their thoughts, like Sarah said. Of, yeah. Exactly right. And so because in the moment, like as you're going through and knocking these things off, like, okay, it, it, you have something to check off the list, essentially. You have something to stay focused on in that moment. So you can be like, okay, we're going to do this, then we're going to do this, and then we're going to do that, and we're going to do this. And if I can continue down my checklist, I never actually have to sit and like actually deal with it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so it that again, it, it, this is just going back to show like what we are doing is life training because it applies to this situation that both of you have been through and to our public safety folks that are living through the trauma every day as well. Like it's by no accident folks that are listening to this podcast that you're keeping yourself busy. It's the exact reason what Sarah just talked about. Like, yeah, you got to work and on speak, 
And speaking of life training and something else I'm noting, you know, one of the things we talk about in, um, in all of our in-services, it's in the foundational presentation is we talk about, you know, we're not talking about the big, bad, critical incident. We're talking about the little tiny things every single day, right? And you don't think you have to process that stress. So you don't, and it creates cumulative stress. Okay. When I was getting my mammogram um, and, you know, your sandwich in there, your head's like this, whatever. And um, she, she kept asking me, you okay? How are you doing? And I said, you know, if I wasn't on Zoloft, I'd be having a panic attack right now because you're just like, you know, in this thing and you're stuck and you've got, I saw the thing, you got like at least 10 pounds of weight, you know? Okay. So I'm able to use my breath. I have some medication support that I don't have a panic attack now. But when I told her that the interesting thing that she said is more often than not, like very common people faint during a mammogram. They do get a panic attack. They cry. And she said, not only are you physically constrained and it's tough physically, you're only here for one reason, you know, and that's to check something really scary. So what I want to encourage people to do is don't take that for granted that you just had a stressful experience just getting a mammogram. Even if it's normal, don't discount these little things that chip away at your nervous system. You don't have to wait until the diagnosis or whatever to process the stress. It's never, every day is stressful for little things. So let's start that practice now. And so speaking of that, and go ahead, Maggie, were you going to add something? Yeah, just that. um, So I've now transitioned out of uh, being a first responder as a, a telecommunicator, 911 operator. Um, after 17 years that I'm now a full-time therapist. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that I teach my clients is um, just to piggyback on, on what you just said, Olivia. um, Yeah. There, there may be cumulative stress and you may have figured out a coping strategy to manage that stress and even manage it well. But there will come a time when that same exact stress at the same exact level that you've handled well plenty of times before gets you. And Mm -hmm. in that moment, it's less about, um, you know, beating yourself up about why can't why can't I get it right this time? Why can't I get through the mammogram this time? I've been through six others. Um, What's wrong with me? It's not. It just your tools ran out or. Um, you didn't get to employ them the same way or something else happened that day. But mm-hmm. that it to me has been, I think I even wrote you an email about this after I got back from instructor school, I had to go. Yeah, this. you did. Yeah. 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 And I, for the first time I was like, oh, I know how to breathe now. So the scan was a piece of cake and it was always so difficult before because my brain was spinning. Is this going to be the time mm-hmm. they find out that it came back? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's so funny. I get a lot of my first responder students telling me they use these tools actually in medical settings and tests for themselves, you know, and um, yeah, that uh, cumulative, like with our whole IVF thing, I had to get, you know, you get lots of tests, HSGs and ERAs, and they're very painful. And, you know, I would breathe through it and do everything. But there was one where before she even started, I grabbed the one of the nurse's hands and I was sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. She hadn't even 
done anything yet. And I said, I'm sorry. I think it's this four year journey <laughs> of me having positivity and da, da 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 just crashing down as I lay down on that, you know, in that machine. So it's like when it, you're exactly right. It's gonna, you're, you're coping and that's all you're doing. You're not processing, you're not integrating. So, you know, that's, yeah, that's a, a great point. And that's why we keep encouraging. This is a daily practice. This is not a, what if this happens practice. And so speaking of, you know, this word resilience that again, I've heard people already say is already overused and they don't even like it anymore. So whatever word grit, robustness, but you know, the, as you've heard me say, I don't like this definition of bouncing back. Cause it means that if you have to me, if I have a bad day, then if I cry about it, if I can't get out of bed that day, does that mean I'm not resilient? Does that mean that I'm not, you know, so how do you guys see your resilience with all the ups and downs? What is it for where you are now? What is that? What does resilience mean for you now? They're silently okay. communicating who's going to go first. <laughs> I, um, yeah, I had some real just flaws and struggles and, um, uh, we can swear on this. Yes. I had some shit that I was going through before I got diagnosed. And um, I mean, like, it was like my whole world was just falling apart. I went through an absolutely horrible divorce. Remember, I'm working in law enforcement and I'm married to somebody that had been in a car accident that was got addicted to pain medication that transitioned to heroin. That's that's what I was getting out of. Um, and then because of that and all the things that come with addiction, I lost my house. I lost my car. I literally was living in an apartment by myself. I didn't even own anything anymore. I'd lost everything. And then I get diagnosed. And within a couple of months of being diagnosed, it was just the, uh, it seems silly to say this, but it was a huge wake up call in highlighting that none of what I thought I knew was going to get me through this. I couldn't get through cancer treatment and this experience by being a really nice person. I couldn't get through this by overly accommodating for everybody else in my life and taking on more and more and more. There was no amount of overtime that I could work that was going to erase the cancer, right? And those were the only things I knew how to do. And I actually Googled resilience, which sounds like, I promise I'm not making this up. It sounds super corny, but I found an article online um, called something like the seven habits of mentally resilient people. And number one on there, I, I love to read. I, um, I just was shocked. I've read Shakespeare before. Number one on this list was a line from Hamlet where Shakespeare wrote and Hamlet said, there is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. And that's yoga. That's, mm -hmm. that's the whole crux of yoga. Yeah. Which is ironic because oh, yeah. I didn't put that together until I went to instructor school. Yeah. And now I go yeah. back and I read my notes from instructor school. And I wrote that line on multiple pages as 
information was being presented. I was like, oh yeah, Hamlet, Hamlet, Hamlet. And what was interesting to me about it, and I do a lot of um, therapeutic writing. So I wrote all of this in an essay um, as I was kind of working my way through treatment and everything. But I just thought, yeah, but that's silly. Like you can't think, who would think cancer is a good thing? There's nothing either good or bad, but the way you think about it makes it what you think it is. And I just, I went through a phase where I was like, no, I can't, you can't make cancer good. This is inevitably a shitty thing. Like there's just like, am I losing my mind right now? Am I like, have I gone a little, a little off? And what I came to realize, and I think this is what really felt me connect with, with Sarah, when she said what she said um, at instructor school was no, really, that is your only piece of control in the mm-hmm. whole journey is how you think about it. And if you choose to think that this was a valuable experience for you and there was something to learn, something to gain, the number of people that are in my life that I wouldn't know any other way, I wouldn't mm-hmm. have another connection to them if it wasn't for this experience. I I got to meet, I had an absolutely ridiculous, huge crush on Stephen Hauschka, the kicker for the Seattle Seahawks. And I got invited to go down onto the field during their breast cancer awareness halftime thing. And he came over and he shook my hand and I cried like a baby and I walked off the field and I was like, that was worth every fucking day. <laughs> <laughs> That's that, cool. a, that was yeah, it. And we're tagging him in this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sure Sarah has a moment just like that where the pieces kind of come together and you're like, wait a second, the way I think about this is, is the name of the game. So, yeah, it's it's funny you say that because I was kind of writing some notes about this. And you're right, I never had really thought about the term bouncing back. I feel like I always hear that when people say like, oh, look, she had a baby and she bounced back. And it's like, I mean, but can you really say that in any, not that having a baby is a traumatic experience, but in any experience of your life that you really bounce back? Because you're going to be different because of every experience in your life. So you never bounce back to what you were before you had a baby or before you lost somebody or before you had cancer, you're going to be different. So there's just so much, there's so much about my cancer that I look back and I'm like, that was a lesson. That was a lesson. And it was all things that I was meant to learn. And it was all experiences I was meant to have to teach me something that made me a stronger, better person, i.e. resilience, um, resilience after the fact. So I do tell people that cancer was the best thing that happened to me. And actually I felt like for a long time, so I went to school, I have a master's in athletic training and I was like, what am I going to do with this? Like, I don't want to be an athletic trainer. I didn't, I was like that kid who was trying to figure out what she was going to do when she grew up and nothing ever seemed to fit. Like, not a career, not, not anything. Like I enjoyed where I was just because I'm that type of person. Like I always make the best out of every situation that I can, but And when I went through cancer, I was like, okay, what am I going to do with this now? And I went after some health coaching and then I started with YFFR and like so many things clicked after I went to the training. I had been doing yoga for decades before and knowing when I left class, like my body feels better, my mind feels better, but not knowing why. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of like the understand why person. And so when I left, I was like, 
I was meant to go to this training. I was meant to get cancer. I was meant to be able to say yes to this. I was meant, I mean, and then, and now working in the nonprofit space that I work into, I'm like, this is what I was meant to do. And if I had to go through all of that, like to your point, I would go through all of it again because I'm, I'm exactly where I meant to be. All the things that I went through and that I did and the education that I was like, how am I going to use this? I'm using it now. So it was for a purpose. I feel like that's, like the words that kept coming up when I'm hearing you both is like, is up leveling. So, you know, just up leveling, I'm using it, I'm using it intentionally, I'm up leveling. And you are absolutely right that, you know, mindset's the key, because people can go through your exact same situation and be in a depression. And and listen, it's, we're not, I don't want to, it's, neither good nor bad, but they're two different experiences. What, you know, what do you want to have? And I had a similar, it was very interesting with IVF. I'm on these groups and everything. And someone posts in one of these groups, IVF is a gift and like the best thing that ever happened to me, right. Or infertility or whatever. And I agree. Right. Because if I, if Eric and I had not had our uh, struggles in our previous marriages with fertility stuff, we wouldn't be married to each other. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you guys right now. I wouldn't have my beautiful baby, right? And also, like you said, I've learned so much. In fact, what you what, what phrase you both used, I wrote an ebook called What You Can Control about the fertility journey, right? Because there's only one thing. <laughs> it's up here. It's your mindset. So, um, um, what was I about to say? Oh my gosh. I always do this. I get into, tell me where I was going. I was going with the, um, oh yes, the infertility is a gift. Okay. Again, morning podcast. Okay. <laughs> so um, I was like, yes, I 100% agree with that. And it launched our candle company and this and that. Okay. And this person that got that set that, you know, posted that got slammed by everyone saying, how could you say that? This is the worst thing you're, this is insulting. And she actually posted something else stating an apology for posting that. And I messaged her and I was like, dude, do not apologize. First of all, this is your journey. And if that's how you feel, that is totally fine. And then there was another therapist who wrote and said, Hey guys, she's talking about post-traumatic growth here. Um, And you know, that's a thing. And, but I was just shocked how many people, again, this goes back to the trauma performative thing, are just like, no, this is my identity and do not take it away from me. I'm mad and sad. And and you can go through those phases, but there are some people that this is now who I am going to identify as, you know, the rest of my life. So it's really about, one, I would say it's choices, but that's even, you can't just sit there and be like, okay, I'm choosing this. You have to have the tools, right? And the tools are, let me process my anger. Let me process how unfair this is. Okay, now that I've processed it, let me open my mind to what a program I use called Expanders. Let me see other people who can um, show me that there is resilience after this. Um, I keep I refer a lot to this neural manifestation program I do called to be magnetic. I like to, to promote them because they've changed my life. Um, but one a phase they talk about is a rock bottom that when you hit a rock bottom, which Maggie, it sounds like you had the 
bottom rockiest of all rock bottoms. <laughs> like that's insane. And um, I can't wait to sit down and talk more about that with you. Um, but, uh, you know, people think of rock bottoms as, well, everything I know to be true is wrong. I must be a bad person, like, you know, all that stuff. When really, whatever you believe in, right, universe, whatever, hit you at that rock bottom so you could up level. And since you're not doing fast enough with your own choices, they got, you know, the universe has to knock it, punch you in the face with it to get you going in the right direction. So there are two things that can happen with a rock bottom. You can either stay there and be in what they call a rut. And I'm just going to stay and live here. Or depending on how you navigate the situation, you can then up level. And so that's what it sounds like to you. Because I'm seeing both of you that are two of the most amazing people that I really personally just really like you both like seriously you're you both glow like you're literally gorgeous and it's like wow that's what that looks like to go from the bottom and launch yourself upward I mean I'm just seeing it in real life it's it's amazing and Sarah you just mentioned your nonprofit, and I want to hear how that came about I know Eric's gonna as our co-host has to uh, sign off here. Any last words you want to say before I take over as primary hostess? No, I think this is a fantastic conversation. Uh, one thing that you both know resonates deeply with me from the Stoic philosophy is controlling what you can control, which is obviously the mental side of the of things. And so that's been resonating deeply. And then what Olivia just said too is that what comes up for me is you guys are both explaining your your growth from this is how you've changed your ownership of it. So you're not owning the identity of trauma and victim. You're owning the identity of survivor advocate, like empowering others to overcome. Like that's what you're owning. And that's a major shift and has changed the outlook. I can only imagine, or you both are like, if you can probably imagine like if you'd chose the opposite and how life would look if you had chosen the opposite, you know? And so that is at some point, that is the gap of choice. Like you do have that choice. Now I'm going to own, I'm going to empower others because of this. And that's powerful, powerful stuff. And I think that's why we see the two uh, amazing women that we have today with us. So thank you for being so vulnerable uh, with this. I can't wait to hear the second half of the show, quite frankly, <laughs> as a listener like everybody else. And so thank you so much for, for sharing that with us. And before this becomes a female-only conversation, I just want to plug that men also get breast cancer, so they need to check as well. One of my dearest, bestest friends is a boy, and he um, had breast cancer. So I just uh, want to make sure all our boys are not tuning out either. Um, okay, cool. So, um, okay, so Sarah, Faith Through Fire, nonprofit, when were you like, I have this idea and I want to make it happen and tell us what the organization mission is. But also yep. for you, like, as you're doing it, what is the personal mission that it does for you? So actually, the, the nonprofit is not m just my nonprofit. So the nonprofit was born in 2019. Um, and by the founder is also a survivor, a young survivor. She was also diagnosed in her 30s. And 
um, she realized when she was going through it that um, breast cancer is not just a physical journey. It's a mental and emotional journey. And that that is very much lacking in the, the care that you get there. Hospitals and the healthcare system is there to address your physical um, cancer, but not necessarily. I remember as an example, I remember I went and asked my oncologist like, Hey, what can I do about like the really dry, painful sex that I'm having right now? And he was like, Mm, you can talk to Barb out front and Barb was the per- like the social worker that helped you pick out, pick out your wigs. <laughs> it's like only because she was a menopausal woman. Um, so it's just like that kind of support is not necessarily, is not necessarily available. So she, this nonprofit was born. I was at the launch breakfast. I was like, yes, I want to be a part of this. I was just out of treatment. So I was diagnosed in 18 And she was recruiting mentors to be a part of the program. And so I was one of the very first cohort of mentors. And at the time I was dabbling and trying to get into health coaching and was still working at the birth center and trying to figure out my footing in life. Like, what am I going to do with all my degrees and this knowledge that I have and this passion for yoga? And um, so then I, it took me, it took me about a year to accept. So we started our own podcast um, and we did that mostly because we're like, oh, wouldn't it be fun to start a podcast? Um, We get about 12,000 listens a year on that podcast that we started for fun. And um, I, she talked, she eventually, she was like, what are you doing, Sarah? Like you should just come work for the nonprofit. So I am now VP of operations. Operations is my thing, is my jam. Um, but we have a cornerstone um, program that is based around mentoring. So we train uh, women and men. We actually have two male mentors, um, one up north and then one here locally in St. Louis. We train our mentors to kind of understand the um, psychological response to being diagnosed, fight, flight, or freeze, um, what to like, how to kind of conversate, asking open-ended questions, kind of it's like its own little mini coaching course. And then we will match up somebody who's been newly diagnosed with a thriving survivor. So somebody we've trained to just kind of be there to guide them through. Um, and it's all based on text. So you can be anywhere throughout the country to help and support somebody anywhere throughout the country. So um, that program, you know, has seen some pretty amazing things. What's really cool is I've mentored many women through And I usually like have a hard boundary of like, I'm not going to go meet you. You know, sometimes they'll be like, can we get together? And I'm like, I really don't, you know, like you got enough going on when you're about to move into survivorship. Like I would love to go have coffee with you or maybe we can go for a walk or something. But when you meet these women, it's like you're instantly best friends with them. Kind of like Maggie in that situation. Um, You just know you have this connection and you've already been talking to them for so long. So Um, So we have a mentorship program. We send Build-A-Bears to kids and grandkids whose um, family has been diagnosed. Um, Just kind of one of the hardest parts for us was telling our kids, you know, this is what mom's going to go through. And I couldn't hold my three and a half year old after surgery. Um, There was just some things to consider. And it's hard to tell those little kids and for their minds to really connect with what's going on. Um, And they feel it. (laughs) They're you know, like, I don't want to liken them to like dogs, but if you have pets, your pets feel it too, but they feel those emotions that you're having within you. So it's best to just talk to them about it instead of trying to like hide from it. Um, so the bears kind of are this tangible source of emotional support. And then, you know, our mentors can kind of step in and be like, this is what I did to tell my kids. Or, you know, there's a book that you can read to them. 
Um, we also have, um, within this last year, we built a respite house in a resort that's outside of St. Louis. And we will send families there, um, families or caregivers, or you can go by yourself if that's what you need, where you can just get away from all things cancer. And it's out in nature. Um, there's trees everywhere. There's lakes, there's water. So there's really all the healing properties of nature that you could need out there. Um, and that's just to provide memories that are free from cancer and losing your hair and figuring out your identity and wondering how your sexuality is going to be for the rest of your life. So, um, the feedback we get about there, about just the trips out there are, we were able to have the conversations that we've been needing to for months or over the last year and figuring out a path forward. We actually lost, um, one of our stage mentors, stage four mentors last Christmas and about two months before she started to decline, she went out there with her daughter and we were at her funeral and her daughter was talking about like the impact of being able to make these memories with her mom before she, you know, turned the corner. And like, if that just doesn't get you in all the feels and like, it makes every single minute of all the work worth it. So, um, so yeah, that is what Faith Through Fire is. Um, we're always growing. We're, you know, a support for anyone, anywhere throughout the country. Um, we have people in California, Florida, Wisconsin, everywhere. That's amazing. And that's, and it's, um, you know, after my miscarriage, I took myself to a respite house so that, you know, like a little casita in New Mexico. And what I realized too is when you, what makes everything worse is all the other bullshit that's around you. So if you take that away and you're just handling this, you can kind of go through that, you know, and get some resilience out of it. But it's really hard when life is punching you in the face and, you know, everywhere else. So that's a beautiful part of it. And um, so when to, like you said, it makes every, you know, inch of it, um, you know, and every minute of work worth it when you hear those stories, and so do you feel that um, by doing this work, it continues to give purpose to what you went through? 100%. It always feels like the right timing. I think when I was going through it, I thought I'm going to help someone else when I'm done. Um, I'm going to, mm -hmm. you know, I'm that person who like turns around and helps the person behind me. Um, but I didn't really see it being my life's work. <laughs> I didn't see it being my career after. Mm -hmm. um, but now that it is, it just, everything has all come together. You know, I'm using my coaching every single day when I'm talking to the, to the mentors about how to be a positive mentor for their mentees and, you know, within organizational structure and um, leadership, I'm using everything that I've kind of already had my hands in mm -hmm. to like, push the organization forward and, and to, and to make the mission actually, you know, come to life. So yeah, it yeah. has given a lot, it has given a lot of purpose. That was a, another thing they say in that in to be magnetic about the rock bottom is now is the navigating it to come out of it as an up level means you actually become an expert in what you're struggling with, what your challenge is, right? So if it's, um, you know, a financial thing, and Eric and I are actually in a financial rock bottom because of a real estate situation, whatever, but I've decided I'm going to dive in and become an expert in um, investing and this and that, because then I have so many tools I can share with other people, right? So that's part of 
navigating a rock bottom. Um, and Maggie, what do you have a way that you kind of continue to give purpose to it? Or is that, or do you just kind of say like, that's the journey I went through? Yeah. Um, gosh, Sarah, we have so many parallels. <laughs> um, I, and I love that. I do feel like something similar happened to me in that I had started back to school for um, my master's in mental health work. And, uh, you know, I, then I had to put that on pause and go through treatment and everything. And then um, came out of that with a little bit of, uh, I got to have my cancer journey um, as someone who was, yes, absolutely a patient that didn't know any of the medical side of things. And it's like a crash course in, um, in medicine to go through something like that. Um, but I already had the, some elements of what it's like to help people in trauma. And for me, what that did was as I went through my own journey, it put a magnifying glass on every section of it where there was some need that wasn't being met or there was some area that like, hey, guys, are, are we ever going to talk about this? Are we ever going to focus on this? Um, because the, those conversations about sex, sexual health, sexuality are done so clinically that um, you're, you're not addressing like the emotional piece of it. Um, so after I went through my journey um, and made it to the other side of treatment, had the exact same experience you did, Sarah, where it's just almost moments of panic. It's like, but I, I just had somebody watching me every week and now there's nobody around and I'm scared and there's nobody to talk to about it. And it's like, <clears throat> actually, I'm going to quote one of my own clients. I had a client tell me, it's like there's this expectation that I have a reservoir of gratitude that's just full all the time. And I'm supposed to pull from that and give it when I'm feeling really low. And I don't, yeah, I'm grateful to be alive, but I don't have any more gratitude to give in this moment. I'm scared. And I, I felt that so deeply. And I started thinking, what do I have that I can offer people that are also going through this? Um, because I'm not a doctor. I can't, I can't treat somebody, but I can help them with the, the mental health journey. I ran um, at my oncology clinic where I was treated. When I went back to school, I ran a three-part series called Women, Sex, and Cancer. Um, and the first piece was on body image and how um, you are just trying to make peace with what's going on and how you cannot be at war with your body. You and your body have to team up and be at war against the disease. And then the next one was how to have difficult conversations with your partner about sex. That is a real thing that we're not, we're not talking about. We're not teaching people. And then the last one was, you know, finding resources, finding options for if sex doesn't feel like what it used to, what do I do? What are, what's out there for me to create the experience that I want to have so that, you know, I don't lose something that was important or special to me, that I'm not forever changed in a way that I didn't want to be. So for me, that's really, 
in a, in a slightly longer answer, I guess. That's me trying to take all the different pieces of my life that existed up until till that point and kind of put it together and see, yeah, what can I, what can I create? What's the message in this mess? Because it's there somewhere. I just, you got to dig for it. I like the message in this mess. I like that. And I also, Sarah, I like that you said a, a thriving survivor as well, because it seems to me that, and this is their job, but once the diagnosis comes, it's like everyone's assuming, okay, there's one goal here and that's staying alive, right? And, you know, but what about the thriving piece? What about the good, a, a good life? <laughs> you know, if I'm, if I'm going to stay alive, can I like make my life like worth it and great, right? And those things aren't addressed. And again, like you were, you're were both talking about the mental and physical together. You have to have the, men, the, the mind has to, be thriving and and have the enjoyment of life and sex and this and that and partnership and, and respite houses, you know, and the body will hopefully, will hopefully follow that. And again, not to compare, but just I'm applying and relating in the fertility infertility world. Um, you know, you gain a lot of weight because of the hormones. So you, you don't recognize your body, you go through the, dryness, the night sweats, and this is just taking the hormones to prepare, right? And my pregnancy was really hard because I had preeclampsia. I was up to 200 pounds. I was uncomfortable. I had insomnia. I had restless. I had everything you could have. And there's this messaging in the infertility world. You wanted this, right? You asked for it. You wanted it. You paid for it. You better be grateful every second. Same thing when the baby's born. Oh, you're tired? Well, you really wanted that, right? And so there's there's nuances, there's complexities, there's this and that. And doctors, offices in general miss all that because they have one job. So I don't want to be mad at them. They got one job. Yes, please do that job. But that's why it's important to have people like you doing what you do so that we can address all the other layers and nuances, you know? So it's just so critical um, what you guys are doing and that you've, you know, again, like you're a gift to so many people and, and you had to go through what you went through to be this gift, but it sounds like you both are in great places about that. Um, and I, I have an idea of what we're going to name this episode, which is, uh, Sarah, the name of your blog that you wrote for us, um, which is breast cancer is the best thing is that that ever happened to me. Um, and Maggie, I didn't know that that's what you did with writing. I'd love for you to also write a companion blog too. Um, you can read Sarah's and see, you know, what you would like to write and we'll publish it this month to go along with this podcast. Um, mm -hmm. you guys have inspired me so much and sorry, did I interrupt what you're going to say? No, I just, uh, yeah, I absolutely would love to, to do that. And, um, it's, it's funny. Like, I don't think you ever get into something like this to be inspiring. And I know I've right. told you that before, but, um, yoga for first responders instructor school changed my life. It, for me, that was the moment all the pieces connected and I could say, there's some, there is something truly great out there for me. And I have just put like all of these things happen for a reason. I've just put all the puzzle pieces together mm -hmm. and the, 
just everything about it, um, from the math classes to the brain science to the, um, you know, this is how you build what you're trying to, like, I had all of the pieces, but they hadn't quite come together yet. So Mm. I appreciate you saying that we're inspiring in some way, but really, I just want to hand that right back to you and say, um, you were a major influence on where I'm at now, 18 months later. Well, I'm honored that you would say that. And it's funny, like you said, I never, we don't go through this to be inspiring. You know, when I started yoga for first responders, I didn't say one day I'm going to have people in my class and they're going to be going through this, this, and this, and it's going to, you know, you don't think that you just go with, here's where I am in life. And here's the next best step. Here's the next best step. And you have to leave, at least what I do is I leave the bigger picture to whatever you believe in, you know, and I leave that bigger chessboard to, you know, to something bigger. And I just do the next best thing. And it sounds like that's what you guys are doing too. And I want to switch gears uh, as we start to come to a close here, because uh, Maggie, you uh, were a first responder recently left and um, Sarah, you are married to a firefighter. So I want to talk about that world quickly. Um, first, Maggie, tell us briefly how you were like, yes, 911, I'm diving into that. And then when did you, were you also like, and I'm done? Like, like what was the thought patterns around that? Yeah. So I originally started in law enforcement support, um, in, we have like, I worked in a big County and we had our own records, um, channel that did. Um, so it was like the data records channel. So you would run people and plates and you'd um, give warrant information, order information out over the radio. And then you had a handful of other things that you had to do as well. And then in 2007, I think we went through financial crisis and that hit our um, law enforcement center. And so there were layoffs coming and I was on the layoff list and they said, well, you can always transition over to 911 because we need people there. So I thought, oh, I'll do that like for a little while until I find another job. And almost 17 years later, (laughs) I, um, I just, it was a lot. It was a lot. I very much felt, um, like I was a first responder. That was an important part of my identity. Um, Mm -hmm. I liked what I did. Um, I liked that I was helping people and helping people, caring for other people has always been uh, just a truly a core part of um, what I want my life to be. I love that so much. And then I got sent to instructor school and I learned in instructor school that uh, yoga is not easy. There are going to be difficult things that happen. And you have two ways of forming how you look at that. Is this a challenge or is this a threat? And I really applied that um, at instructor school to mean there's this difficult pose and I'm probably not physically strong enough to do that yet, but am I going to persevere through it because I know there's some good feeling on the other side of accomplishing it. Can I hold that position for a second longer? Can I, how am I, um, how am I applying this to be stronger so that I can do this later? And then I got back home after instructor school 
And I realized, is this a challenge or a threat doesn't just apply to things that are physically difficult. And I started looking at um, relationships and things within the first responder world. Is this a challenge or is this a threat to my mental health? And it wasn't very long after thinking that way that I realized I've completely outgrown where I am. And that's terrifying because what else is there? Well, what else is there is whatever I create. So I worked really hard for a period of time to create another opportunity for myself and, um, and was ready to walk away from being a first responder and say, here's this other thing that I've created that also helps people. And I care about first responders deeply. And I now also do um, mental health therapy for, for first responders. You know, you just gave me a whole new perspective on challenge versus threat because normally or typically how we're presenting it is you're thinking something's a threat that's not. And so let's change your mindset to challenge and be resilient. And this is what we basically were talking about this whole episode. But then I realized, oh my God, when you say, when we're, let's legitimately ask that question, is this a challenge or a threat? And what we thought we need to get through, right? This is how I felt about my first marriage, right? I was like, this is a challenge. We're supposed to get through it with counseling, you know? And then in the counseling session, or it was like right afterwards, I realized, like, I think because he finally was like, yes, I want to work on this marriage. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, shit, that means that I have to stay married to him. <laughs> you know, I was like, this is a threat. I got to get out of here. And so it's actually let's legitimately ask that question, because what if it legit is a threat <laughs> that you've been treating as a challenge? So thanks for that, because that's like a whole new perspective on you know, on asking yourself that question. Um, so brilliant. We're going to start applying that. Um, and so I love that you're on the other side, Maggie, which also makes, gives you a lot more time to help us out at yoga for first responders and being a brand new squad leader coming up on this next training, which is cool. And now that I know you guys have this friendship, I got to make a schedule where you guys are squad leaders together at the same training. So we got to figure that out. Um, so Sarah, your husband is a firefighter and his name is Eric, just like my husband. And it's funny. I sent the blog you wrote to, um, one of our volunteers to, you know, help edit it and get it ready to publish. And I sent it to her and it didn't have your name on it. And it just said, you know, breast cancer is the best thing that ever happened to me. And one of the first paragraphs is mentioning your husband, Eric, who's a firefighter. And so I went back half hour later. I was like, by the way, I didn't write this. This isn't me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, I could see where it'd be confusing, but I didn't want this person to be like, I had no idea. Olivia. <laughs> you know? So um, tell me about when, when you first met Eric, was he already a firefighter? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, but he he was only he had only been on the truck for like six months, so he was okay. fresh. Yeah, freshy. How do you feel? Like, what would be different, good or bad? You know, about your life if he had another profession? If he wasn't a firefighter, what would look different? Um, I mean, I think so much. Actually, I've been thinking about this a lot recently because I feel like it's trickled into our marriage quite a bit. Is that so he recently just hurt his foot and he's been home. And I was just telling him last night, like, 
you know, the routine is a little bit different when you're not here. Like I mom a little bit differently, like the girls and I have a little bit of different routine. And then I also do some like different bedtime things that I wouldn't normally do when he's there. Like I put on my liver castor oil pack, which he would find annoying. And I also like to wear onesies. And which he's like his favorite thing to do when we go to sleep is for him to rub my belly. I don't know. Apparently, like I have a lucky belly. But um he... I do caster packs too, by the way. So oh, I am totally good. with you and I love my one. It's like the secret behavior you do when your partner's not around. Yeah. Right. Understood. So, <laughs> so I went to go put on my pajamas last night and I was like, well, the only ones I have are the ones who are that are onesies, not like, you know, and he was like, and I go, It's because you you've been home and you've been throwing off my routine. So anyway. Um, he, I think something that has, uh, that has really been on my mind a lot recently is like when we first got married, I would be like, oh, the garage door needs fixing or like, oh, this needs that. And I remember one time it was like, I got into that quick habit of thinking like, oh, that seems like a, a manly thing that you should do. And he was like, this just needs new batteries. You can do it. And so I think it was after that moment that I just started being like, oh, well, I can do anything. And I, and I think within a marriage, like where they're gone, you know, 48 hours at a time and you, you know, are the sole parent and so in a lot of relationships, it's like, well, you know, the dad does breakfast in the morning for the kids and then the mom takes care of dinner. Like you kind of fall into this like routinely pattern of just functioning and, you know, I'll tell people sometimes to which I think Eric gets a little bit like rolls his eyes or annoyed where I'm like, I can't count on Eric any one day of the week, like because mm-hmm. his schedule rotates. So I can't be like, well, on Mondays, he does this. So we just function as if we could function all alone. So when it comes specifically to how we went through breast cancer, I mean, I, there was a lot of times where, and I wrote in my blog that the guys donated sick days to him. And it was like this really beautiful situation because he was home all the time. But I got to be like, can you please go to work? I'm not (laughs) used to you being around this much. Like I enjoy your presence when I need it. But like I, you, you get this sense of independence and then you crave it all the time. And when that sex in the city movie came out and Carrie was like, I think we should have like, you should have a place in the city and I'll have a place here. I was like, yes, there's something to that. Separation. But yeah, I don't know that that's necessarily a good thing, a bad thing, a right or wrong thing. I just think within a firefighter marriage, inevitably, you know, within firefighter families in general, it's like the rule of thumb is like, if something bad is going to happen, it's usually going to happen when they're on shift mm-hmm. within the home. I mean, so you just learn to be a little bit more independent and that definitely did apply within the cancer journey journey in general. Um, we, we both did our own thing and tried to process in our own ways until, until it got to be too hard and we definitely hit the wall and um, we had to come together a little bit more. And I would definitely say that we are stronger now because of the conversations we had after, um, you know, we, it's easy to fall back into the patterns again, but just kind of being like having these times where we're home a little bit more, it's, um, it's good for, I think everybody. So yeah, it has a lot of challenges, but it has a lot of cool stuff too. So. Absolutely. It's, and that's kind of what I want to highlight is all these small little nuances people aren't even considering. So for anyone who's listening, who is a wife bar instructor or wants to be, you don't have to address it specifically, but when you're teaching your students or you're teaching the spouses of your students, these are things just to have in the back of your mind that they're coming 
with to the yoga mat, you know? Um, so we don't always have to think about these obtuse situations, but like the nuances are what I think gets missed. Just like you were talking about with going through the journey, you're talking about the big stuff, but what about this small quote unquote things that aren't being addressed, you know? Mm-hmm. And Maggie, do you feel like, um, so you were married before, are you in partnership now? No, <laughs> yeah. I, um, I absolutely fell head over heels for uh, the most wonderful person I've ever met. Um, And he passed away in 2019 from pancreatic cancer. Maggie. So, yeah, I haven't really dated since then. It's been too hard. Of course. Of course. And you know what? You don't have to. (laughs) That's the thing, you know, there's. Sometimes, yeah. again, the messaging out there is, um, you know. You beat so, stage four cancer. Yeah, same, Sarah. You figure out you can do shit on your own. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when you were in your relationships mm-hmm. as a first responder, right? So we just had, you know, Sarah's perspective on the other side. But as a first responder, did you see any specific ways that impacted your relationships? Yes. Oh yeah. Um, if you're, (laughs) if you're committed to your work as a first responder, you know, it's shift work. Um, you don't get holidays off. You're working overtime. Um, most of the time it was mandatory. So somebody would call out sick. I'd get held over for a shift. Um, and what I noticed in my marriage at the time was, uh, the more I was at work and the lower my husband was in his ability to just cope with whatever he had going on, the more he identified my work as a problem and was, well, you're not home to help with this or you're not around to do this. And um, yeah, it uh, it became kind of like a, a bit of contention that it was always, you should look for another job. You should look for another job. Um, because people that don't do shift work that aren't, um, not being held over all the time, don't understand the, um, the demand of the position. I think there's a lot of people out there that get to a place with their, their work or their career where they do take pieces of it home with them, but it is very different, um, as a first responder and, uh, that it just was something that we could never quite get to a good, a good place on. He thought the job is a priority over our relationship and you need to leave the job. And I saw, I saw it more as this relationship isn't going to last forever. Like this marriage is (laughs) approaching the end of its life. And this job is what will get me through that difficulty. Mm. I'll be able to make it on my own without you when you are Mm -hmm. out of the picture if I stay here. Right, right. Wow. Yeah. It's so, God, it's so funny when we just know inherently when relationships aren't going to work because in my first marriage, I heard a radio ad for garbage workers and they were looking for women specifically. And I remember thinking, you know, they make good money, they have holidays off. And I remember thinking, 
that's what I'll do. When my marriage falls apart, that's what I'm going to do to survive. Like thinking, and then I never had a second thought of why are you thinking that way? Is there something that you need to, you know, it's crazy. So, wow. Okay. And so that is ended up, so that job was, did that, did do that for you then. Yeah, absolutely. I, and the irony was, um, we, we separated and he moved out and I had absolutely no idea that 18 months later, um, I'd be diagnosed with cancer. So, well, you know, what happened? We, I lost the house. Um, he is, you know, using heroin at the time. And so he's not paying on anything that as we're working our way through a divorce that he said, you know, oh yeah, I'll take responsibility for these vehicles or this credit card or whatever. So I, um, yeah, it, it was, when I say this was like a low point in my life, there's like, I can't imagine anything else could have gone, uh, wrong at that point. But I had a repossessed vehicle in my name. I had a um, house foreclosed on in my name. I'm living in an apartment. I don't have anything. I don't have any money. So what do I do? I work every overtime shift I can. Mm -hmm. I'm living Mm -hmm. at work. No one outside or no one at work, nobody outside of work really even knows that I'm going through a divorce because why would I tell people that, right? I'm just going to hunker down and and fight my way through it. Um, I get diagnosed I'm, I'm divorced. And then shortly after I get diagnosed and I start chemo. And I think it was a week after my hair fell out was my first appearance in bankruptcy court. So I'm sitting in bankruptcy court, bald from chemo, literally just crying, thinking, I just like, what else, what else can happen? This is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And um, from there to think, I mean, I am almost 10 years out from when I was diagnosed and I think that's kind of like the secret joy that I get now. If you meet me, you don't know any of, you can't tell any of that stuff by looking at me. It is now my choice if I want to share it. So it's a little bit of the control piece, right? When you're going through it and you're bald, you can sort of maybe control that if you put on a wig, but you, you don't have much control over who knows parts of your story. People know you're struggling. You're going to be struggling for a while. And now I just think there's so much freedom in, yeah, that's my story. And it's up to me if I want to tell any part of it. I don't have to. And that that's the gift of it, that I have another life now that's mm-hmm. so amazing that 10 years ago I couldn't dream of. And I got there because of my mindset. And knowing what you just said that you are so specific about where and who you share your story with and that you chose to share it with us, like makes me want to cry because that just, you know, I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you sharing so much too, Sarah, like having you both on, like my day is set and you know, you both, like, I really want to say you both are the picture of resilience and, all these positive things. And I also know from people telling me because of IVF and stuff like, Oh, you're, I don't know how you do it. You're such a powerhouse. Stop telling me that. Like, I don't want to be also identified as though the resilient one she's gets through it. 
I want to cry and get into a ball sometimes. Okay. So I also don't want to, you know, put that on you too. Like, look at these, you know, we can do it women. Like you're everything. You're all levels, all nuances. And I see all of it. And there really isn't a word to express my appreciation and love for you both. Um, So I don't want to try and fail. Just know that like, I love and appreciate you and feel honored that you're in my life and that we have the YFFR mission in common and that you've chosen to take some of your time, which I know is, is very valuable because of all the other stuff you do and you give some of that time to YFFR and to our trainees as you're both squad leaders. And um, so just thank you so much. And, you know, the last thing I want to end with is, whoever's listening, I, I want it different. Okay. I want it different than the messaging of like, don't forget to get a mammogram once a year and do your yoga. It's like, for be real, what would you love to say to people that are listening? Go. Oh, I'll, I'll start with this one. Um, I, our messaging all the time is like just on empowerment in general. And that's with the nonprofit. And I feel like within myself in general, because there are so many situations that I hear where somebody feels something, or they even just have this intuition within their body that something is wrong. And then they just go believe what somebody else tells them about their body. And I think that that is not just true when you feel a lump in your breast, but I think it just, it applies to so many different things. And don't let somebody else also tell you like, I hate, I hate even when I catch myself doing it to my kids where I'm just like, they'll hurt something and I go, you're fine. And it's Mm -hmm. like, but maybe they're not like be that person to just kind of speak up and say the true and real thing about yourself. um, Because you'll feel better for it. And because you'll potentially get the help that you need. Yeah. Brilliant. Beautifully said. Uh, I love that. Yeah, that I know so many people too that have figured something was wrong, and it's just it's intuition, and it's just something doesn't feel the way it used to, and I need to get this looked at. So, um, I really struggled with um, the. I think the first like event that I did when I was kind of going through everything was like a relay for life event, and somebody showed up with these T-shirts that said "Save the Tatas." And I, I thought it was funny. And then I thought, why does that not like, why, why am I bothered by that? Why does that not sit well with me? And I started to become very aware of the sexualization of breast cancer. And it is not about saving boobs. It is literally about everything else. It's, um, it's about saving lives. And it's about the quality of life that people have with early detection and the more options they have. And, you know, you look at the struggles that Sarah's been through, the struggles that I've been through, the struggles that you've been through, not even with breast cancer, but just with IVF. And everybody's story is a little bit different, has um, its own kind of narrative, but they all deal with grief and loss. So if we're looking at early detection and this is you know, do something because you have more options if you're proactive about it. I think that's just a good life message. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, gosh, what if there's this practice I heard of when something, when anything happens in life, but especially stuff that we want to label bad, what if the first thing you said was thank you? 
because a lot of times, you know, after the fact, you look back, you see why it happened, and then you show gratitude. If there's this belief that everything's happening for your highest good, what if you proactively said that? It's so hard. It's so hard. When I had my miscarriage, um, after I came back from the doctor's office, we just drove into nature and I laid down and I looked at the sky and I just said, thank you. And I didn't want to say it. You know, I didn't want to say that I wanted to, and I was mad. It wasn't taking away the emotion, but I just gave myself the gift of what if something blooms from this? I gave myself that gift of an expansive mindset around the situation versus the narrow mindset of just bad, right? So um, I think that's kind of what came to mind when you said that, Maggie. So thank you both for taking the time to dive into all of that. And um, I don't want to say anything else because I think I just, it's perfect what you said and it's perfect to have you here. Thank you guys so, so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Hey, before we go, I want to remind you that training your mental and physical health is incredibly important, especially for those working in high stress jobs like first responders. And if you're interested in learning more about yoga for first responders, visit yogaforfirstresponders.org or our on-demand training app, online course platform, in-person training, and more. Like this podcast, subscribe, and give us a great review. We are so happy to have you part of the YFFR mission.